Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Allison Langer. I'm Zaire. I'm Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. This is the eighth episode in a 10-part series inspired by the people I taught memoir writing in a men's prison. This series will bring you stories written by my former memoir students, as well as formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people from around the United States. Their experiences and voices, like those of many incarcerated people, are often marginalized and unheard. To help us get this right, Zaire will be contributing his feedback and commentary throughout the series as co-host, along with Andrea and me. Zaire is a poet, musician, actor, and teaching artist who teaches writing and poetry in school and juvenile detention facilities. Zaire has also lent us music for this series. Wait, is Zaire an actor? Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know. I, okay. I saw that in his bio. I <laughs> wanted to add it. I was like, whoa, cool, dang. Anyway, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for having me. I want to say something before we continue. We want to be respectful of those who have been personally affected by violence. So we don't mean to sensationalize crime and we don't mean to sensationalize someone who breaks the law. Instead, we want to share stories. We believe that stories lead to understanding. And if there's something we need more of these days, it's understanding. On episode 115, which was the first episode in this series, we went into detail about our motivation and hope for airing these stories. I told my story of meeting Too Tall and some of the other men you will hear from and have heard from in this series. Please listen to that episode if you haven't already. In this episode, you will hear a story by Robert Fell. Robert has, he's, I laugh because he's like, I receive ep- essays from him almost every single week, like three, four. And I recently got an email where he was like, I'm going to just give you a week break, but then I'm going to come back. That's so funny. Robert has a Bachelor's of Agricultural Science from Cornell. He's certified as a specialist vegetable grower in intensive growing methods and has over 5,000 hours in facilitating other inmates and Department of Corrections staff in intensive farming methods. Okay, each week in class, he would show up with a stack of essays for me to edit, and almost none of them required much editing. I always wanted more information or more details But Robert, I think he just really wanted me to know him and to see that he was a capable person. When I asked whether or not he'd made the changes to the essays I edited, he said he threw them out. And I would be like, what? Why are you throwing your stuff out? And he's like, I don't need this. Who's going to read it? And it broke my heart. So now he sends them to me. He threw out his stories or he threw out your edits? No, he would just get them, read them, and then and throw them in the trash. He's like, I don't. His stories? Yeah. He just was like, I don't need them. What am I going to do with these? They're just piling up. He just chucked them. God. Yeah. He just figured no one cared to hear what he had to say. Anyway, we reconnected a few months ago. JPay, the prison email system. 
And like I said, the essays are just piling in. It's just a matter of like, which one can we use? I mean, they're all so good. But I want to stop you for a second. Yeah. I want to stop you for a second because um, I just want to have a quick conversation with Zaire about like, is writing just like worth it just to write just for yourself and maybe the one person you share it with? Is that enough? I mean, I guess, yes. For some people it is. Like just writing is so good for you. It's so important. But also I'm like, dang, what a shame because it sounds like this guy has like a book or two already written. So for me, I have I have pieces that are performance pieces and I have pieces that are just for me. Um, and I sort of decide which one's which after it's finished or after I've sat on it for a while. But yeah, the, mo- the majority of the world here is like 3% of what I write. <laughs> what if um, you died? And people that you loved cracked into your writing. Is that okay? Or do you want to like actually burn your stuff before you die? Well, I, I wouldn't go as far as burning my stuff, but I feel like the people close to me would uh, respect my decision not to share those. But what if they read them? Is that okay? I guess it would depend on the person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this because we come from a place of privilege like that we can contact a bookseller. We can submit an essay. This guy's stuck. Who's going to do that for him? He doesn't have family left. If you think about it, like he's 72. Okay. He doesn't see a book in his future, nor do a lot of people who want to deal with that fucking process. I can't even believe you're bringing that up after what we've been going through trying to get our books published. I mean, no one wants to hear from us. You think somebody wants to hear from some guy in prison? I mean, I was I was seeing it as like just to write, just to write versus to write to try to get other people to hear your noise. But you're saying can't even consider, fathom that idea, that possibility. Right. And we talked about that in episode in the first episode of the series about too tall trying to get his stories out. Like he doesn't know where the first step in, in getting your, his story published. So, OK. So what we don't understand is how it feels to serve a life sentence. Right. We don't know what the mind has to do to be able to get through that. But I can tell from the emails and the letters, communicating with someone who listens to you, who sees you and treats you like a human being, gives you back a piece of yourself in order to get through this life sentence. So when they write, they are communicating, whether it's to the energy in the world, to me, to, you know, just the opportunity to put something on a podcast so somebody else could hear it. You know, it's just like, wow, somebody is seeing them. Somebody knows they are there. Yeah. And sometimes just the writing it down, like for certain issues, you know, you you write it out. You write out that whatever problem is plaguing your mind. And then once it's written, um, you may choose to share it with someone else. You may not, but you got it out. It served its purpose. So I can understand, you know, him feeling like I don't I don't really need this anymore. I, I got it out. It served its purpose. It did its time. Amazing. Thank you. All right, after the break, Zaire will read Damaged Goods by Robert Fell. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. 
I'm Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kinda, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. We're back. You're listening to Writing Class Radio. This is Andrea Askowitz. Up next is Zaire reading Robert Fell's story, Damaged Goods. My name is Robert Thomas Fell, DC number 072139. I've been detained in the Florida Department of Corrections for over 42 years, convicted of murdering my wife. On Valentine's Day, 1979, I found my wife in bed with another man. It wasn't the first time. We'd separated several times for the same reason. Each time, she promised it would never happen again. I loved her, so I kept accepting her back. She never kept her word. The plan was to get her boyfriend, but as all plans go, there's room for error. In March 1979, at approximately 9.30 a.m., the police arrived at my place of work and told me my wife had been in a fatal accident. Her boyfriend's Jeep had been booby-trapped to kill him when he put his vehicle in gear. At 7, my wife got into the Jeep and put the car in drive. As the car rolled forward, the gun went off. According to the coroner, she died instantly without pain whatsoever. As long as I can remember, my dad was strict. There were three ways he punished me. The first was by open hand. The second with a closed fist. And the third was with a barber's razor sharpening belt. When kids in my neighborhood would chase me down and beat me, I'd come home only to receive a more severe beating for not winning the fight. Dad gave me fighting lessons nightly. Dad had been a street fighter growing up, and he wouldn't accept losing. I got so good at street fighting that I'd act like I was running away so I could lure the boys into a blind alley. There, I'd hide a baseball bat and take them all down. When I was eight, my dad took me hunting. He handed me a bolt-action twenty-two with a seven-shot clip. Our beagle scared up a flock of pheasants. Dad shot two with his 12-gauge shotgun. I fired, but got none. On the way home, Dad backhanded me several times, giving me a busted lip and a bloody nose. He said he hit me because I wasted a good bullet. The next weekend, my dad dropped me off at a shooting arcade and paid the operator $20 to give me a good gun and left me on my own to learn. Dad picked me up 10 hours later. I hadn't had a bite to eat or drink all day. My trigger finger was sore, but the arcade operator showed me which of my eyes was best. And I'd mastered shooting. Every week for nearly four years, I used my allowance to buy two boxes of 22 shells and snuck into the woods to practice. During that time, I won many shooting competitions and got the razor belt when I lost. After the most brutal of his beatings, I couldn't go to school for two weeks. When I was 12, my dad moved away. 
My mom refused to allow me to visit my dad for over four years. I'd worked part-time and on weekends for three years to save up for a new Volkswagen bus and a Christmas present for dad, a Model 700 rifle. At 16, I drove to Alabama to visit my dad. I figured he'd be happy to see me. But he came out of his house with a baseball bat and started smashing my windows and yelling, I don't cotton the commie Jap cars. I didn't tell him the car was German because he'd fought in World War II. I came out of the bus with the 730-06 pointed at him. Dad stopped in his tracks and yelled at me to get off his property and to never come back. I didn't see Dad again until many years later when he was dying. I was in my camo, DBUs, a couple medals, some ribbons, and an expert marksman pin on my shirt. Dad asked, you kill any commie gooks over there? I nodded and handed him the same Model 700 rifle, very well used by then. I said, Dad, I brought you this gun. It's the one I bought for you the Christmas I last saw you. Put it to good use for a couple tours. But I didn't go to the hospital to talk about killing. I went to thank him for teaching me how to stay alive. I forgive you, Dad. I love you with all my heart. I love you too, son. After Dad spoke, he closed his eyes for the last time. Almost one year after my wife was murdered, I was found guilty and sentenced to life in Florida State Prison. In January 1980, at 6.30 a.m., I arrived at Lake Butler Reception Center by plane. The correctional officers made me stand completely naked in a garage area in 38-degree weather for over two hours. I was forced to spread my ass cheeks as one of the guards held a flashlight on my exposed anus. I was instructed to squat and cough, destroying what was left of my sense of self. When eventually processed and placed in a cell, the guards came by and called us all kinds of names, trying to provoke us into saying something back. The guy in the cell next to me did say something, and the guards dragged him to the shower and beat him to a pulp. Later that night, he died. They said he hung himself. A couple of weeks later, I was transferred to Union Correctional, a.k.a. The Rock. There, I had to use my self-defense skills to keep from being raped. I hurt them pretty bad, but once you hurt five guys at once, word gets around. Don't mess with that white boy. After protecting my honor, I was placed in a one-man cell. Nightly, I heard the painful screams of young men being raped by the hordes of rapists in the rock. Since then, I've been transferred 12 times. For over 42 years, I've welcomed any job that was offered to me. I was a locksmith, making and servicing keys and installing a foolproof alarm system, farmer, growing crops that earned the Department of Correction awards and money, and a certified canine bloodhound trainer. Despite all the good things I've done inside, I've been tried and tested by prison guards, prison staff, and prison inmates. All scum, the cockroaches of the system, a system which feeds on our souls, tearing them apart piece by piece. I've been turned down seven times by the parole commission, now called the Offender Review. They make up their own rules and excuses 
to keep the good ones in prison and release the ones who will reviolate, which keeps their job secure. Truth is, if we were all paroled, there would be no more parole commission. It doesn't matter how good you are or what you do to make up for your past. You are treated like dirt by the commission and everyone else. I'm just a number, number 072139, being punished for a crime I committed over 40 years ago. I've been asked if I still miss my wife every minute of the day. But the common question I've been asked is, was it worth it? To that, I say, hell no, it wasn't worth it. Not a day goes by when I don't feel remorse for my actions. Nobody has the right to take another's life. I was 27 when I was arrested. I'm going on 71. I know I've become damaged goods, and I wonder how many out there in the world I hope to one day re-enter will accept this damaged man. I think about my dad often, what his role was in my mistake and my survival. I forgive him. I forgive myself. The question is, will the offender of you forgive me too? This story, I know controversial, will cause a lot of people to offer their opinions and stuff like that, but it just kills me. It it really hits me in the pit of my stomach. How did it hit you guys? I feel like, yes, this guy seriously fucked up. His wife's family is still always going to deal with the loss of their daughter and their friend. I mean, obviously, there's a, the victim side of this. He did something wrong, whether he killed her or somebody else. It was wrong, wrong. Just because she cheated doesn't mean she deserves to die. So those principles that are in here, um, I get 100%. But I also get that we are housing people who have made mistakes that we deem unredeemable. And is that the way our system and our world should work? So we've talked about that a lot during this series, the unfairness and the ridiculousness of these long sentences and and how we think a forever sentence is just wrong. But I want to talk about the, what I thought this story was about I thought the writing was really clear, really beautiful, but there was something that um, I think he could have done better because when I heard it this time, I thought, okay, this is a story about forgiving his dad and forgiving himself. I hate being critical of a story because, especially with this guy, because we know he's not going to make the changes because he already told us he won't. And it's beautiful as is, and he needed to write it this way for a reason, but when the narrator goes to visit his dad on his dad's deathbed, he says he forgives him. And I thought that that was too soon. I thought it was too soon because what his father taught him was how to survive. And while he did teach him how to survive on the, on the street against kids and how to hide a bat and fight back, the biggest survival is this, is surviving all these years in prison surviving against rapists in prison. So I get when we get to the end and he forgives his dad, that is when I, that was the first time I wanted to understand his forgiveness. 
in this warped, fucked up way, this dad who, in my estimation, was bad, did give this guy a strange gift, the ability to survive against people who are even badder. He gave him a problem, then the gift. Like, could we not have just skipped the problem part and the gift? You know, we're not going to be critical of somebody's parenting because I, we only know one side and there's a million sides to this story. So, and that's not what the story's about anyway. And I agree with you. I think in, I think you're right now that I'm listening to it, you know, listening to what you're saying, he comes to the discovery of forgiveness much later, but that's our interpretation of how he should feel. But if he in fact felt grateful to his dad along the way and could see that side then that is his true feelings. And he felt it there and he he forgave him. I didn't think he made a case big enough because when he was forgiving his dad, when his dad was dying, I was like, really? Why? So maybe while he was in combat, there could have been something that where he came to the conclusion of like, wow, okay, if it hadn't been for my dad, I'd probably be dead here too. So maybe that's the part that's missing. Maybe. But I think when we're surrounded by people and they're about to die, the heart and the brain, everything is just a little bit I don't know. I think we're more open. Right. That's true. I understand uh, where you're coming from about the forgiveness seeming like it came too early because it, it did for me too. Um, I I feel like in that situation, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have forgave, forgiven in that moment. But again, I, I, whenever I read someone else's story or whenever I'm hearing someone else's story, I always have to remind myself that it's not me. <laughs> I'm someone that's usually pretty quick to forgive. I don't hold grudges, but I, I also know people that are way, way beyond that in, in that respect, where they've forgotten immediately. You could wrong them and they'll tell you that you wronged them and then they're, they're done with it. So forgiveness comes in different stages for different people. I can definitely understand why he would choose to forgive his father in that moment. And also, you know, we learn from people because of and in spite of. We learn from teaching, from people investing time in us, and then we learn from what they haven't done. I think throughout the story, you see that his father didn't seem like a very forgiving person. I think that's something he learned from his father. He's like, okay, that's something I don't want to, I don't want to inherit from you. I think that played a part in why he chose to forgive in that moment. He didn't make that case, but it could be true. And that's, Zaire, like that's, a, that's your interpretation, which is a generous and beautiful interpretation. And maybe you're right. Maybe he didn't want to be unforgiving and unforgivable the way he viewed his father. And I think stories are fine with a little bit of interpretation. I mean, poetry's like that too. Um, more so, but I, I really, this is why we sometimes in, in class discuss these stories and we all have differing opinions about what it meant. And I do think what Zaire said is really important. It's not our story. So we have to be open to another side. Yep. And that's important, you know, because how we think and what we do is not, I mean, I, I hold grudges like crazy, like talk to me in six months, you know, or in this case, it, like maybe in your third life together with me. But I mean, what good does that do? Holding grudges? Mm-mm, not good. My heart opened just hearing his heart, you know, feeling that his heart opened too. I wasn't ready to forgive his dad. Maybe that's it. You know, we have, the reader has to also be ready in order to buy the story. Right. 
but maybe some of our listeners will be ready. Listen, I've read this story a million times and it never occurred to me until you said it. So I trusted him mm-hmm. there. And then it makes sense now. I mean, there, a story can always be made better, but to whom? So that's a question. So no wonder he doesn't take my edits. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need to. Um, can we talk yeah. about that moment where the narrator said, my wife was murdered? I was found guilty. Almost one year after my wife was murdered, I was found guilty and sentenced to life in a Florida state prison. Like a year after I murdered my wife, I would have liked that better. Just a direct statement. I guess because his intent wasn't to murder his wife, although it was to murder somebody else, right? But in his mind, he didn't mean to murder his wife. So I think him taking responsibility for that is too much. Oh, that's what I got from this sentence. He removed himself for a minute. (gasps) Oh, okay. And Zaire, is that how you hear it? Because that's so interesting. Yeah, that's essentially what what I got from it. I think whenever we do something uh, wrong, it was unintentional. We try our best to uh, disassociate with it. Obviously, he can't because he's in prison for it. But I think that's the, the, the best that he can do in that situation is say she was murdered. Do you think that he consciously as an artist chose that dissociated phrasing or is he just emotionally that's the way he sees it? He maybe doesn't even know that that feels distant. It's difficult to tell what I'd say based off of what I what I read is this is how he views it on a day-to-day basis. My wife was murdered. That's how he views it. So it just became, it's natural to write that because that's how he sees it in his mind. I mean, in some of the other stories that we've told in this series, I'm recalling uh, Dwayne Williams, that he went to a convenience store just to get some money and then someone was murdered, right? So it's really kind of the same thing. He didn't murder that guy. Someone was murdered, but he was a part of it. So guess what? He's in prison for murder. But in that case, he didn't actually hold the gun. In this case, Robert actually created this booby trap. I don't know if he actually did it himself or somebody else. He paid somebody else to do it for him. Okay. Yeah. So that's- Yeah, I get it. Okay. Shit. But it's important to hear how these things land on a reader- because every word and every sentence matter because they're, they're saying something about you, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and how it's conveyed. I got a very clear sense of the narrator's sense of himself, the way that he called himself a number two times. I thought that was so heartbreaking and beautiful and scary sounding. Yeah. Started at the beginning and then at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, just a number and then he read the number again. Yo, that was good. Thank you, Robert, for sharing your story. Thank you guys all for listening. In the next episode, you will meet a man who, for security reasons, prefers to remain nameless. His story will break your heart. Thank you, Robert Fell, for sharing your story. And thank you for listening. Writing Class Radio is produced by Allison Langer, Zaire, me, Andrea Askowitz, and by Matt Kundle, Evan Serminski, and Courtney Fox at the Sound Off Media Company. Music by Zaire and Marnino Toussaint. 
There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, essays to study, and editing resources. If you love the lessons you get on each episode, you can get them all in one place in our three-part video series for just $50. Click video classes on our website. If you want to be a part of the movement that helps people better understand each other through storytelling, follow us on Patreon. For $10 a month, I will answer all your publishing questions. For $25 a month, you can join Allison's first draft weekly writers group where you can write to a prompt and share your work. That meets every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern. And it is the coolest group. There are people from all over the world tuning in. To sign up, go to patreon.com slash writing class radio. But the first one is always free. So if you want to try it out, email info at writingclassradio.com and we'll send you the link. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.